0: This week on the show, we cover the five times if bridge performance improvement that Christoph Forbost has been making. Uh, How Unix has won is an article we also read a little bit through. We have an article about understanding the VLAN configuration on FreeBSD. We cover Beehive PCI pass through on OmniOS, as well as the TrueNAS 11.3 U2 update and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. now episode 350 speedy bridges recorded on the 13th of may 2020 hello i'm your host benedict Heuschling.
1: and i'm alan jude
0: welcome back to bsd now your show for everything bsd related and uh we just jump right into the headlines as always or most of the time uh because we have interesting things there is a five times if bridge performance improvement coming down the line
1: yep so, with the FreeBSD Foundation grant, Christoph Provost has harnessed the new parallel techniques to uncork the performance bottleneck in the bridge driver. So, uh, as an independent embedded systems developer, Christoph certainly knows his way around the network stack. Uh, for the past several years, ever since George Neville Neal approached him at AGBSDCon with an offer he couldn't refuse, he's been the maintainer of FreeBSD's port of PF, the OpenBSD packet filter. Um, before this, uh, uh, even before this, if you've used IPv6, you've benefited from Christoph's work on cleaning up fragmentation handling in the firewalls um, and a bunch of other things. He also did a bunch of work on PF Sync, uh, the tool that uh, lets you sync the firewall state between your um, active passive firewall pair so that when you fail over, all the open connections don't get disconnected. Like all your NAT state and so on is kept in sync between the two. Uh, and he did a bunch of work to improve that. Uh, And as part of that, they also found that there were performance problems with the bridge driver, um, the tool that effectively turns a FreeBSD machine into a switch. Uh, And it's heavily used when, especially if you're using uh, vImage jails on FreeBSD or if you're using Beehive, it's most common to take either the e-pair from a VNet jail or the tap device you get from Beehive or OpenVPN or WireGuard or anything like that, and then use the bridge driver to connect that to your real Ethernet so that uh, they can all be on the same network. So uh, the FreeBSD Foundation agreed to fund Christophe to work on IFBridge and make it better. So Christophe provided a detailed technical review of his work in the May and June issue of the FreeBSD Journal. Uh, for our purposes here, suffice to say that the current IFBridge implementation need, uh, or contends heavily on a single lock called the Bridge Lock, which is a mutex or mutually exclusive lock it's a way to ensure data integrity by only allowing one core of your machine to access the data at a time. Unfortunately, the if-bridge implementation stops cores from doing the, uh, the things a switch should do, like forwarding packets, when any core is writing to the bridge. This limits throughput to about 3.7 million packets per second, regardless of how many cores your system has. After iterating through some options, Christoph's ultimate solution uh, takes advantage of the new epoch framework, that was added in FreeBSD 13 through cover use of um, concurrency and the tools added to FreeBSD called Concurrency Kit. Epoch uh, allows the safe use of protected data structures without acquiring a lock, either a mutex or a read or write lock. So it doesn't have to be locked at all. As Christoph explains in the article, the final result is that we can still only perform one modification of the bridge state i.e. adding an interface or learning which interface a specific MAC address belongs to at a time. But we can keep processing packets on the other CPUs while we're doing this. The way epoch works is it's almost like a copy-on-write type thing. Like the, the other cores can see the old version of the data and keep using it until the new version exists. And then we can guarantee we don't free the old uh, version until everybody's finished using it. It's basically a, a safe way to do kind of this slightly asynchronous update. Anyway, because we can now continue to process packets on the other CPUs while one CPU is modifying the bridge instead of, you know, as soon as anybody's modifying the bridge, everybody else has to stop working. Um, This new if bridge implementation can forward 18.6 million packets per second uh, on the test machine for a more than 5x improvement in throughput. Mm -hmm. I need to update uh, my home NAS to have this and see if my VMs can now go a lot faster than they could before.
0: Oh yeah. So that's great improvement, definitely, by uh, using this uh, epoch framework.
1: Also, uh, Christoph streams some of his work on this uh, and the videos of that over over on his Twitch profile, which I've linked in the show notes. So if you want to uh, get Christoph's beer recommendations <laughs> and also watch him explain a little bit of how this works and how he developed it, he, he streamed a couple of times now, I think, and the videos are up there in the archive. And you should check them out. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and so this was done uh, with the FreeBSD Foundation grant. And uh, the money, I think, is well spent in this case. So thank you, Christoph, for this. And I guess there was more work coming down the line. He's not finished yet. But uh, the improvements yet are already uh, very exciting. Uh, Then next we have uh, how Unix won in a blog post by Vivek Haldar. Uh, How Unix won. Uh, Unix has won in every conceivable way. And in true mythic style, it contains the seeds of its own eclipse. This is my subjective historical narrative of how that happened. I'm using the name UNIX to include the entire family of operating systems descended from it uh, that have been heavily influenced by it, uh, which includes Linux, SunOS, Solaris, BSD, Mac OS X, and many, many others. Uh, Both major mobile operating systems, Android and iOS, have UNIX roots. The billions of users dwarf those clunky things like laptops and desktops even there windows is only the non-unix viable operating system almost everything running server side in giant data centers is linux how did unix win uh, so the bullet point first is um i was uh, oh it was built by programmers for programmers if you read the early paper describing unix there's a separate link to those you will see how the key abstractions the hierarchical file systems for example permissions processes interactive shells pipes have lasted conceptually unsullied for decades. That could only have happened if it exerted such a force field over geek minds that they propagated it. Then there's the majority of it written uh, not in assembly language, but in C, a higher level language, hence making it portable. This enables relatively easy ports to a wide variety of hardware. A wide variety. (laughs) A wide, very wide. Uh, a freak historical accident as well. at and Labs, where it was developed, was forbidden under its antitrust settlement from commercializing products unrelated to its core develop, uh, telecom business. Uh, hence, Unix was licensed very cheaply to universities, including University of California at Berkeley, which subsequently built one of the most influential branches in the Unix family tree, BSD. Apparently, at and classified Unix as industrial waste for tax purposes when licensing it. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay, that story. I want to know more about. There's a there's a link there that I'm going to open and read later.
0: That is kind of a yeah. <laughs> and so Unix spread through academia, and those students spread it through corporations after they graduated. See, that's how it's done. Uh, it's a strategy that has been used by every major tech company. Only in this case, it was organic. So there's a bit more historical parts, uh, and then uh, how? So how and why would you uh, would we move past Unix? Unix, which got standardized into a POSIX spec, has accreted a tremendous amount of complexity over the decades. The POSIX spec is 3,000 pages long. Unix now has nearly 400 system calls, or Linux. Uh, What started as a clean, pure, minimal, and elegant uh, set of system abstractions has become a complex beast. And there's a bit more about the ecosystem in various operating systems. The entire ecosystem in which an operating system exists is changing. Application level experiences are hermetic, and make the underlying operating systems more or less irrelevant. Just look at Android or iOS or Chrome OS. Programming to a virtual machine, like the Java virtual machine, makes programmers much more invested in their PL than uh, the operating system itself. In the above points, at its uh, closing point, uh, they raise an interesting question. What does a modern operating system want? Look, for example, at Fuchsia, which is going in the direction... Fuchsia. That's Yeah,
1: fuchsia is okay. in the color.
0: <laughs> I learned that now. Okay, which uh, is going in the direction of a microkernel with capabilities that pushes most drivers and operating system services out to user space. These are ideas that have been floating in academic operating system research for decades, but could never gain real mainstream acceptance because of the high barrier to making a viable real-world operating system. This is the effect Rob Pike was talking about in his Systems Research is Irrelevant talk, separate link here, uh, but the prior two trends are finally dislodging the iron grip of Unix, and operating systems are becoming interesting again.
1: The point about the uh, kind of how operating systems are kind of being hidden behind the hermetically sealed application layer uh, really plays out at how almost everything is either in your web browser or it's an you know an Electron app, which is just an embedded a browser that runs one thing basically using the browser as the operating system and the browser then talks to your real operating system i guess actually so things like what did i just say it was called thing that electron uh electron is basically the new java uh it's it's the virtual runtime that you can write your application to and then the browser takes care of running on the different operating systems
0: uh yeah uh time for the news run Have the second part of the central log server tutorial we teased on last week's episode. So this is the second part here.
1: Yeah. Uh, so this blog post continues where the last one left off. Open source solutions to check your syslog log messages exist, such as uh, log check or log watch. Although these are not uh, too difficult to implement and maintain, I still found uh, these to be too much at times. So I went uh, for my own homegrown solution of checking the syslog messages on my central log host. And the solution presented in this blog works uh, fairly well for him, but your results may vary. Some events that they have uh, detect here are failed hard drives, daemon which are not configured correctly, which are behaving differently than expected, or disks or volumes that are filling up, or bad requests to web servers and mail servers. So again, if you have an up-to-date FreeBSD 11 or 12 machine and you've already set up your central log host, to aggregate the logs from a bunch of machines then you're good to go you also need a mail client set up so that you'll be able to send mail uh, so in this case they install bash and log check and it looks like they also have another tool called log tail 2. so the log check check shell script <laughs> uh, which they have here called check syslogsh sets a bunch of environment variables and controls how the logs get checked and then for example they have a function called failures which greps for any of these uh, words that are considered failure, like error, crit, invalid, fail, false, uh, you know, restart, deny, disable, ignored, broken, exceeded, blocked, offline, et cetera, et cetera, or exceptions and others like that. And they also check that the script's running as root and a bunch of other bits, and they schedule this to run every hour on the hour and check it and make sure it's good.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's nice as a completion of the whole tutorial, if you put part one and two together.
1: Then yeah, uh-huh. especially useful if you have a lot of machines and you want to watch for certain log entries on all of them.
0: Yep. Next up, we have the understanding VLAN configuration on FreeBSD. It starts with, uh, until recently, I've never had a chance to use VLANs on FreeBSD hosts, though I sometimes configure them on Ethernet switches. But when I was playing with VNet jails, I suddenly got interested in VLAN configuration on FreeBSD and experimented with it for some time. I wrote this short article to summarize my current understanding of how to configure those on FreeBSD. So, terminology for those who don't know what a VLAN is. Uh, so, he thinks the word VLAN is being used in two different senses. In a narrow sense, it stands for IEEE 802.q VLAN tagging. On FreeBSD, it's implemented as VLAN, so there's a man page for it, of course. Uh, logical interface, sub-interfaces. In a broader sense, the word VLAN is used to describe a layer 2 network, which is physically or logically created in a wider network. On a single Ethernet switch, a VLAN can be regarded as a virtual switch with a selected uh, subset of its Ethernet port. On FreeBSD, it can be represented by bridge. Ah, and this is the bridge (laughs) that that just got much faster. Okay, so in this article, I use the word in the latter sense. Though the words VLAN and bridge are interchangeable, in most cases, they are not for really network uh, for the network geeks. Be careful. Uh, for the VLAN, in, ne- in the narrow sense, I use tagged or trunk ports or interface. Describes the target topology as long, along with a, a picture to see where VLANs go and uh, which bridges there are. Uh, I set a goal to create the following network topology with an Ethernet switch, a FreeBSD host, and VNet jails on them. The switch has the Layer 3 capability and acts as a router for this network. Later, I will also try to have the host forward IP traffic between the VLANs. Uh, As I'm not a network engineer, uh, nor any engineer of any kind, there might be uh, something which makes no sense in real networks, but anyway, I'm going for it.
1: Yeah, so basically it looks like he has three sets of jails and he wants to, basically he has bridge 10, 20, and 30, which correspond to VLANs 10, 20, and 30. Uh, And I've those all route out via VLAN 1, which is his regular EM0 NIC out to his switch.
0: Oh yeah, and I like how he structures this. So he makes a configuration change and shows how this is done, and then uh, gives us an updated network diagram to see, you know, what kind of VLANs are now existing, what kind of um, bridges are configured at this point. So there's a, a new picture each time there's a configuration change being done.
1: Yeah, and you can you can see what each change adds to the diagram. Yeah, it's uh, very helpful. Mm-hmm.
0: Then there's a section uh, with additional additional topics. How to allow uh, the host to access the jails directly, if that's your uh, desired configuration.
1: Basically, putting uh, an IP on the bridge interface on the host for each of those subnets, so that um, the host is is also in that VLAN. Basically, yeah. And then he configures forwarding and sets up some rules for that.
0: Oh yeah. So if you follow this along, you should not have a problem to recreate the same kind of setup.
1: Yeah, and uh, I, I like the way they did the diagrams. Like you said,
0: that's pretty cool. Okay, and then, uh, once we're on the Beehive topic already, a little bit, uh, we also have an article about using Beehive PCI passthrough on OmniOS. Yeah,
1: so they say, um, some hardware is not supported in Lumos yet, but luckily there's Beehive, which supports PCI passthrough to any modern guest operating system. Uh, To continue with my OmniOS desktop on modern hardware, I would love Wi-Fi support. So why not use Beehive Guest as a router zone uh, which provides the required drivers uh, I think I've seen people do this even on uh, uh, freebsd where they end up bridging into the the uh, past the Wi-Fi into the guest uh, and set up their routing so they actually go into the VM to get on the Wi-Fi to get out to the internet <laughs> uh, which you know it works I guess uh, so first of all it requires an up-to-date OmniOS version which provides beehive and uh, pass-through support so you want to make sure you have that and you have the beehive package and uh, Beehive brand of zone. Uh, so they have kind of an example here. You can see the global zone, which is the host basically, has is passing the PCI Wi-Fi device through into the Beehive zone, which is the guest. And it's also uh, setting up a virtio vnic into the host. So then the host will actually basically use the Beehive guest as its router. And that Beehive guest will then NAT that connection out over the Wi-Fi. And so they show how to do that. Basically, create a bridge interface, which is actually called switch0 on Illumos, and then create virtual NICs, uh, one for the uplink and one for Beehive. Set those up, adding an address to the uplink one so that you have uh, an address and you're in the right subnet, and then setting up pass-through of the Wi-Fi into Beehive by basically in your ETC PPT aliases. Uh, you say pass-through, you know, PCIe device 0x86, 85, uh, and that will pass through the Wi-Fi. Again, they used PRT-conf, uh, which is like PCI-conf to get the ID of the Wi-Fi. Uh, once that's all set up and running, see that the device is now passed through to the Beehive instead of being attached on the host. Then they create a Zvol for the Beehive to run off of, download, in this case, FreeBSD. So they're downloading FreeBSD to get Wi-Fi drivers.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, so they create the zone with FreeBSD in it, get it up and running and add that pass-through device into that Beehive. So now they'll have a Beehive running with that with FreeBSD in it and they'll pass through the Wi-Fi into it. And then they configure that FreeBSD machine to be the NAT router for their Wi-Fi. So it actually includes at the end there, the setup of loading the Wi-Fi driver in FreeBSD and configuring PF to be your firewall and, and do the NAT for you. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. this is how to use FreeBSD To run your Wi-Fi on your Illumos machine.
0: Yeah, if it works. It's uh, definitely an interesting use case, yeah. All right, and then we have uh, updates. Uh, TrueNAS 11.3 U2 is generally available.
1: Uh, So remember, FreeNAS is now called TrueNAS Core. They've unified the code base with the commercial product. The new release is now available.
0: Uh, So this update is based on FreeNAS 11.3. In
1: the the TrueNAS version, they have the nice uh, graphical overview of what your hardware looks like.
0: Oh yes, yeah, that, that's, that's good. The more disks you have, the easier uh, it would get to lose sight of, you know, which one is in which pool.
1: Which one is where. <laughs> uh,
0: but they got some uh, listing of uh, major improvements. So they have ZFS replication, eight times performance improvement. Wow, five terabyte per hour, parallel tasks, auto resume. simplified setup with wizards for iSCSI, SMB pools, networking and replication. Uh, they also have SMB improvements uh, with user quotas via active directory, shadow copies and ACL managers. Easier plugins, the UI redesign, categories not reduces IP addresses. Uh, dashboard and reporting got faster response times and more relevant data. Uh, configuration management got API-enabled uh, config saved and audits, and graphical enclosure and high availability management. Yeah, that's what we have in the screenshot.
1: Yes, uh, and there was also the improvements to integration with Microsoft Active Directory, especially now that the defaults for the security things are changing in Microsoft. Uh, they have all the updated uh, compatibility stuff in Truenas now.
0: Oh yeah, I think people will be very happy to update their systems with this. Yep. All right time for BeastieBits bits this week uh, we have a couple of articles um, but if you think this is a, a section where your article is still missing then send uh, your article to feedback at and it will appear in a future episode uh, here we have hardened bsd's april 2020 status report uh, sean webb writes uh, hey hardened bsd community it has been a while since i've written a status report and now it's definitely time to do so Over the past few months, I've put my focus on infrastructure stability and merge conflict resolution. The work on exploit mitigations is still somewhat on pause, though I've made slight progress on cross-DSO CFI. Our build infrastructure has been hosted at my current employer for a few years now. I'm so grateful for G2 Inc., now Huntington Ingalls Industries, for their support and help in ensuring the continued success of the project. After over five years of service at my current employer, I've tendered my letter of resignation. The people I've met, the projects I've worked on, and the culture and virtues instilled in me made me fall in love with G2. I've decided to take a new employment opportunity. Blackhawk Nest will host the hardened BSD build infrastructure with room to grow. I've architected the infrastructure such that the migration should be mostly plug and play, only needing to change a few IP addresses. I plan to shut down the infrastructure in preparation for the migration on 2nd uh, of May, so that's already done by the time you listen to this episode, which is one week in advance of my start date. Uh, Builds will resume once the infrastructure has been deployed at the new facility. Note that published builds and package repos will still be accessible. Only the build infrastructure which is separate from the infrastructure serving the builds and package repos will be down. I do not currently have a date for when the infrastructure will be back online, but I suspect around two to three weeks from 2nd of May. I'm excited for this new opportunity and especially for Blackhawk Nest for agreeing to host the built infrastructure. I'm positive that the relationship between HardenBSD and Blackhawk Nest will be symbiotic. Thank you so much for your help and support of the project.
1: Yeah, well, I guess with the clarification that uh, packages and stuff will still work, uh, I guess it's really Mm -hmm. not that big of a deal.
0: Yep, good luck to uh, HardenBSDs in its new home, in the new Nest, (laughs) I would say. And uh, yeah, we'll give you updates if there's something new happening in that uh, space. Oh, since a lot of people are currently looking for a job, um, n- mostly not on their fault. Uh, we have the NYC box mailing list, the listing of open source development development jobs from the uh, U.S. Nationwide Consulting Company. Oh, there's a bunch of things. Ah,
1: Okay. Yep, uh, so they have a bunch of job posts available, uh, including Intelligence Analyst, uh, Drupal Developer, Java Developer, uh, PHP Developer, Scrum Master, NetApp Storage Management Consultant, Application Analyst, Backend Services Developer, User Experience Expert, Compliance Analyst, IAM Architect, and Service Delivery Coordinator.
0: And they're all in different states, so not all in one place, so that's good if people don't want to
1: move. Yes, so there might be something near you if you're looking for something.
0: Yep, hope you uh, find a job this way. And, uh, yeah, let us know <laughs> if you got a, uh, an interesting job in, in the BSD space, for example. All right, uh, it's feedback and questions time. And this will be a very sad and uh, a boring section if you don't continue to submit us questions or feedback to this part of the show. BSD... Uh, BSD (laughs) BSD questions, of course, are um, our preferred thing, but you could also ask us ZFS and all the other things around computers, Uh, we try to answer those, and um, if not, then we'll open it up to the wider community. So send your question to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and then you will appear with your question in a future episode. Uh, Greg did this and has a Lenovo question, and we'll start with him. So Greg writes, Alan, Benedict and JT, my impression is that a lot of BSD users have Lenovo laptops. That might be true. Uh, (laughs) Lenovo rated it critical issue since it seems to fix an issue that could break your Thunderbolt port after 6 to 12 months of normal use. It seems to affect the uh, most recent Lenovo laptops from the 2017 to 2019 uh, era. The problem was linked to a bad firmware update last year, which appears to wear out the Thunderbolt controller's SPI ROM that holds configuration. And here's the link to Lenovo's uh, website to get the fix. Yeah, that's good to know yeah uh
1: slightly confusingly i think when we talked about this uh a while back as well uh, my laptop is not on the list my x270 but other laptops of the same generation like the t470 and t570 are even the thinkpad 25th anniversary edition is i don't think mine actually has thunderbolt it does have USB C, and they list USB C or thunderbolt connectors might be the problem so yeah i'm not sure if my laptop is actually uh at risk for this or not hmm.
0: Yeah, we, pro- we should probably check uh, for the firmware update page if there's something new in there and just apply it, mm-hmm. and see if things will not break after 6 to 12 months.
1: Yep. So yeah, if you have uh, a modern Lenovo, you probably want to double check this list, link in the show notes, and make sure you uh, your laptop's not going to suddenly break itself uh, because it keeps overwriting its SPI flash.
0: Yeah, which is kind of not what you want to have. And the firmware updates typically bring uh, a lot of other improvements and security fixes as well, so staying uh, up uh, up to date on this space is always a good idea. Okay, so thanks, Craig for this. And next up is Matt with a question or feedback about BSD packaging. Matt writes, Hi, all. On last week's show, you requested positive reasons to switch to BSD, so I thought I'd write in with one positive data point about the BSD community. Okay, let's hear it. I wrote an application I thought would be of use to others beyond myself, so I started to think about distro packaging. Ubuntu seems to have the largest mind share these days, so I started the process of packaging it for Debian. If you've never tried to package something for Debian before, it's a little bit like being repeatedly told your princess is in another castle. <laughs> While I was still in the midst of this, a stranger filed a curious bug report against my project in which they indicated their platform was FreeBSD. Uh, In investigating this, I realized they were in the process of packaging my application for FreeBSD. My application ended up being packaged and shipped in FreeBSD by this helpful stranger before I was even halfway through the Debian process. For me, this interaction really showcased the generosity and friendliness of the BSD
1: community. I'm glad Matt had such a good experience.
0: Oh, yes, uh, yeah, it's definitely uh the people that make this packaging and ports framework uh awesome you you always think about, oh, these so many thousands of ports that are available, you just do package install or make install, but there's a lot of things that people do behind the scenes to make that so easy for you as the end user,
1: yeah, but you know, also looking at this from uh the perspective of the person who wrote in here, main reason people develop open source software is for people to use it and finding out people that people are using it and that it's working for them is most of the reward you get from doing open source software is that good feeling now other people are using this and it's helping them i've made other people's lives better and you know this just it, it, so it's important to make sure that we do that and give back to the people that have developed the tools that we find so useful
0: oh yeah you want to focus as a developer on uh, fixing bugs developing features and stuff and not just creating the package to that to bring it out there and give
1: right but also the people doing the packaging get some of the credit for, um, you know, that application being able to just package install away rather than you having to do a bunch of work to get the application working, you know? Uh, And there's a whole slew of people involved in in each step of this, and they're all important. If any one of those breaks down, then something doesn't work. Yeah,
0: and it's a great way here for people to get started in an open source project, like maintain a couple of ports here and there, and then you never know how deep you end up. Oh, and I might as well make changes to the docs or, you know, add another port to my repertoire. And so your list of things grows over the the time, depending on how much time you want to spend on it or how much time you can put into that. And you never know what kind of people you meet, what kind of interesting projects you're working on. And so this is a very easy gateway to get more experience. Okay, so thanks for that. And...
1: uh, Oh, I guess just a uh, reminder before we get into the last one. uh, The FreeBSD core team election is coming up. So if you're a FreeBSD developer of any kind, even ports and then all that counts, the process to run for the election opens up in uh, just over a week uh, from when this episode comes out. Uh, so start thinking about that.
0: Yeah, whether you are want to run for Core or just want to vote, definitely check out the platform that we put up there. There should be an email already in your inbox about this, and uh, yeah, then we'll have
1: Yes, on the developers list and make sure that you can log in and everything yep. uh, before it starts so that I don't have a slew of people having trouble when uh, the election is actually happening.
0: <laughs> this is one of the unique features in the, B, in the FreeBSD space that we have elections every two years and that you can change or make change yourself if you want. Uh, and so uh, the core team is an important uh, part of the project so that uh, people need to run for that. All right, uh, so let's go to Morgan, who's the last one. In this week, uh, with a performance question, Morgan writes, uh, I'm looking for a basic CPU slash memory performance measurement tool so I can check the relative speed of my FreeBSD systems. I run several on DigitalOcean and my own hardware, even a Beehive instance. I like taking speed measurements before and after operating system and hardware upgrades to track variations in performance. For my purposes, the score doesn't need to be super scientific benchmark, just something that gives me a basic idea of a machine speed in the past i turned to the old ubench tool for this uh, it runs for a few minutes and then outputs a single so- uh, score for cpu and memory it's great for this but it takes a while and tends to crash especially in beehive is there's a simple alternative that is quick convenient and runs from a command line no x windows ah there's more what i have used in the past uh, to tell if my digital ocean droplet was on an overloaded machine uh, then I deleted and get a new one was just the SHA five twelve benchmark. Now that
1: I yeah, so that's a built in benchmark in FreeBSD. If you run SHA two fifty six or SHA five twelve T, it runs a little benchmark and outputs a speed.
0: Yeah, and he m- mentions that uh, it can be impacted by special hardware having special codes to make that SHA five twelve faster. Uh, but there is a variant truncated to two fifty six that uses that ZF, that ZFS is using that has never been implemented in hardware, so it's SHA512T256-T. lowercase t, It will run for something like two to five seconds and also outputs a speed that you can compare between machines. It is quite basic, but should give you a reasonable comparison. Note it only uses one CPU, so it will a- a score mostly based on gigahertz of one core.
1: Yeah, uh, it's interesting to see somebody using the truncated version because I added that to FreeBSD because ZFS needed it. Because in ZFS, the the space you have to write the checksum on disk is only 256 bits but a sha 512 is actually about 50 percent faster to calculate than a sha 256 so switching zfs to use sha 512 but just truncated to 256 bits is faster than doing the sha 256 on 64-bit machines but for one reason or another when they standardize the truncated version they use a different initial uh, seed than you do for regular sha 512 and so yeah most of the um stuff that accelerates uh, SHA-512 doesn't apply to the SHA-512 truncated version. And so, it can be a useful way to
0: compare that, yeah. A good memory benchmark? Beehive? Uh, not, yeah, well,
1: Beehive. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not sure if there's ever anything that could be called a good benchmark. But yeah. <laughs> especially in a VM, because uh, there's just so many side effects. Or
0: putrier, but you wouldn't run Poudrier everywhere. He's definitely not mentioning I.O., so it's CPU and
1: memory performance he's after. Yeah. Um, in, in this case, it's mostly, you know, is do I have the noisy neighbor problem, um, which is this concept on, you know, all clouds like Amazon or or DigitalOcean or whatever, where if there other people's VMs that are on the same machine as you are hogging all the resources, then your machine will be slightly slower or just won't be able to burst as much. And so, yeah, when you first get a VM, if you run this test and see that, oh, you know, I have three identical VMs. Uh, and they're all possibly on different hosts, uh, and one of them is significantly slower than the other. It's like, well, then I will delete that one and get a, a new one before I go setting it all up, mm. uh, or you know, just do something to cause it to migrate to a different host. Yeah, bad
0: neighborhood here. Bad, uh, bad, different, different cloud here. Um, yeah. So, if anyone else from our listeners who has a benchmark that they always use for this, uh, let it let us know, and then we'll add this either to next week's uh, show notes. Mm. Or just put a follow-up in here so that people can find it and use it more. Or if someone has developed uh, such a test, then definitely give us a a point to your project website, and uh, we'll be happy to mention it. All right. uh, I think that pretty much covers this week's episode. Uh, Thank you for listening in, as always. And uh, you Hear us definitely next week again.
1: Yeah, uh, make sure you uh, your RSS feed is using the URL of bsdnow.tv and to send your feedback to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Uh, and we'll see you next time.